Welcome to the St George's Leeds Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy the talk. Thank you very much. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Lizzie Wolf, and I'm the rector here at St George's. And this week, as we have already heard, our earth, our city, comes to Holy Trinity, Borlane. Now, the centerpiece of that is an artwork called Gaia by Luke Jerram. And I have been privileged to have a little sneak peek of what it looks like. And let me tell you, it looks spectacular. It's a six-meter replica of our planet, made using NASA imagery and designed to recreate the experience that astronauts have viewing the Earth from space. And it's suspended from the ceiling of a church. I love that combination of art, science, and faith. So we hope that people are going to come into Holy Trinity Ball Lane over the next three weeks and realize that there is a church in the heart of the city that is there to love and serve them. We hope that people are going to be inspired and challenged about climate justice and commit to taking care of our planet. And we hope that reflecting on the wonder of creation might draw people closer to our creator, God. So today, inspired by Our Earth, Our City, I want to look a little bit at the relationship between Christianity and science. Now, I do want to say up front that I am not a scientist. We were due to have an eminent guest speaker who is a professor of physics, but sadly, he is unwell. Now, we did have a little bit more notice this week than we did last week, Abel, uh, but what you've ended up with is me, and I am going to give an introduction, um, which I hope will help us to feel more confident when this subject comes up with family and friends, as it does from time to time. And then we're going to hear from a couple of members of our congregation who are actually scientists. Uh, So there'll be a range of perspectives this morning. Now, there's a popular perception fueled by the media that science and Christianity conflict. And sadly, it is true that the church has sometimes opposed the results of scientific study. An example of that would be Galileo, the 17th century Italian astronomer who discovered that the planets revolve around the sun. He was tried by church inquisition in Rome, ordered to recant, and spent the final eight years of his life under house arrest. But despite incidents like this, many people think that Christianity was actually vital in providing the right environment for the emergence of modern science. So much so that the historian Herbert Butterfield said, science is a child of Christian thought. Science is a child of Christian thought. Why is this? Well, the Christian doctrine of creation means that Christians see the world in a certain way. So firstly, the Bible gives us a picture of a rational creator God. 
This is significant because it suggests that the world should, in principle, be comprehensible to our rational minds. Sometimes we take this for granted, but Einstein once said, the most incomprehensible thing about the world is that it is at all comprehensible. 16th century scientists reasoned that the universe must be orderly and worthy of investigation because it was the work of an intelligent creator. C.S. Lewis put it like this, men became scientific because they expected law in nature. And they expected law in nature because they believed in a legislator. So the biblical picture of a rational, intelligent, creator God helped to encourage the development of science. Secondly, the Bible tells us that the world is created and it's a good creation. This means that experimentation can be used to find out about the universe. In some Indian philosophies, the world is seen as an emanation of the gods, a sort of extension of them, not a distinct entity in its own right. Now, you don't do experiments on something divine. And similarly, if matter is seen as essentially evil, it might not be wise to mess around with it. But the biblical picture of the world as a good creation helped to encourage the development of modern science. Now, you might say, and some people do, well, that's all very well, but that is history. That is in the past. What about now? Are Christianity and science still compatible? You may have heard some of the jokes about this. Uh, one day, a group of scientists got together and decided that humanity had come a long way and no longer needed God. They picked one evolutionist to tell God. So the scientists walked up to God and said, God, we've decided we no longer need you. We can clone people and we can do all sorts of miraculous things. God listened patiently and kindly, and then he said, okay, how about we have a person-making contest? The scientist happily agreed. And God added, now, we're going to do this just like I did back in the old days with Adam. And the scientist said, no problem. He bent down and he grabbed a handful of dirt. No, 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 said God. You make your own dirt. <laughs> now, clearly jokes like that don't tell us very much. But on a more serious note, the headline answer to the relationship between science and Christianity is they complement each other by answering different questions. They complement each other by answering different questions. So science asks questions like, how, when? Theology asks questions like, why, who? Both are important, and both contribute in different ways to what we know about the world. Our passage in Job 28 speaks of the marvels of human science and technology using the picture of a miner extracting precious metals. But it says, science doesn't bring wisdom. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. 
To take a more recent example, scientists gave us the COVID vaccine. This is a huge gift. But science didn't tell us how to navigate global politics and inequalities so everyone could benefit. That's a different question. And solving it needs divine wisdom. So with the artwork of our earth, our city, and our minds, let's look in a bit more detail at the biblical account of creation. Today, I want to think particularly about whether it's compatible with a scientific account of evolution, as that's a particular point of controversy. Uh, one of our children came home from primary school just the other day asking questions about this. Now, the Christian account of creation is primarily set out in Genesis 1 and 2, right at the beginning of the Bible. Creation is described as a series of actions taken by God over a six-day period. And there are Christians who take this literally and who therefore dispute the theory of evolution. Most Christians recognize that the Hebrew word for day can mean different things. And since the sun didn't appear until day four, the writer probably didn't mean a period of 24 hours. It's more likely that the word translated day here refers to a long period of time. That would mean that Genesis is compatible with evolution, with God starting the process and then working within it to produce human life. But many Christians would say this is still too literal an interpretation of Genesis. The Bible contains different types of literature, and the biblical account of creation is not intended to be a science textbook. It's more like a theological poem. Now, poetic, life, poetic language can be true without being literally true. So, for example, let's take uh, Wordsworth's famous poem, Daffodils. I don't know if some of you remember learning that at school, but it starts like this. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high of vales and hills, when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils, beside the lake, beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze. Now, we don't usually say, well, that's ridiculous, daffodils can't dance. They haven't got legs. They grow in the ground. We know it's a poem. Wordsworth is giving us an image. He's drawing us into the experience of going on a walk and coming across these beautiful daffodils. And likewise, Genesis 1 is a poem. And if we want to really understand it, we need to respect that. We need to read it like a poem. And perhaps even more importantly, Genesis 1 is theology, not science. It sets out to answer theological questions. Who and why? And so in poetic form, it communicates truths such as who made the world? God did. Why did God make us? He made us for loving relationships.
Evolution, by contrast, is science, not theology. So evolution sets out to answer the scientific questions of how and when. Evolution tells us about processes of genetic mutation and natural selection. It can't prove or disprove the theological explanation because it tells us something different. It answers different questions. Stephen Hawking, who was arguably the most brilliant scientist of his generation, recognized this when he said, science may solve the problem of how the universe began, but it cannot answer the question, why does the universe bother to exist? Now, as I have been uh, looking into this, I found that this is often illustrated with a story about Aunt Matilda's cake. I don't know why it's always Aunt Matilda, but apparently it often is. So, we need to imagine a beautiful cake, the kind of thing that you might get as a showstopper in the final of Bake Off. And you need to imagine that we ask some top scientists to come and to analyze this cake. So, we might have a nutritionist who can tell us all about the calories and the nutritional effect. We might have a biochemist who can tell us about the structure of the proteins and the fats. Maybe we have a chemist who can tell us about the elements involved in this cake and their bonding. There might be a physicist who can analyze the cake in terms of its fundamental particles. And maybe a mathematician who can offer us some elegant equations to describe the behavior of the particles. Now, when each scientist has given an exhaustive description of the cake in terms of his or her scientific discipline, can we say the cake is completely explained? We have a description of how the cake is made. We've got a description of its nature and its structure. But why was the cake made? Well, the scientists can't tell us that. We have to ask Aunt Matilda. Only Aunt Matilda can reveal the purpose for which she made the cake, to celebrate her nephew Jimmy's birthday. Now, Christianity claims there is one who stands in the same relation to the universe as Aunt Matilda does to her cake. That person, God, has revealed for us the purpose for which he created our gloriously intricate universe. We find that revelation in the Bible, in the story of God's love for us. It's a story of love that never fails and never gives up. Love that finds a way at great cost to bring us home. Because we were made for love. We were made for relationship with our Heavenly Father. Now, I am going to invite scientists, members of the congregation, to come and join me. So, Stephen, David, and Che, if you would come, I'm going to ask you some questions which will hopefully add a bit more depth to the kind of thing that I have been uh, trying to introduce us to. So, um, Stephen, should we start with you? Um, you're going to have to hold the microphone close up to you. <clears throat> First of all, can you tell us, um, in terms that people who are not scientists might understand, 
What kind of scientist are you? What do you do? Um, so, I, I'm called a theoretical mineral physicist. So I study the properties of minerals at very high temperatures and pressures to see what we can understand about the lower mantle, what it's made out of, and how it moves around. Impressive, huh? <laughs> yeah. So, um, can you tell us how your Christian faith um, affects you at work? Yep, so we, I guess we talked a bit about this. I say that my faith doesn't really influence what I study or how I study, how I perform my research. It mainly influences the type of person or I try to be at work, so it's a quite a competitive and stressful environment, so I try to be um, act with integrity and honesty and kindness. I don't always manage that, I, I do fail, but um, that's one way, and I guess the other way is that um, I have a different perspective in that I don't see science as the only way that I can make a positive contribution to the world or to help the world. I also see a need for Jesus and for his forgiveness and transforming power. Um, so that's kind of thinking about how your faith affects you at work. Can we then ask the question the other way around? How does your work impact your faith? Yeah, so, um, so I'd say that there's been no scientific, recent scientific discoveries of shatters my faith or anything like that, but having a discussion with my friend, he pointed out, I mean, we've already talked about creation, that in recent history, the church has had to engage with um, scientific discoveries and how they've influenced our understanding, interpretation of scripture, and thankfully the church has done that, and I presume that's why most of us here believe in theistic evolution. Um, but um, I think it's important that as a church we engage openly and honestly with things that come up with the, in, in science and for example as we look deeper into space it's possible we could discover exoplanets that are, that are habited and how would that influence our understanding of scripture and I'm sure the church will engage with that we've got theologians who can look into that and engage with those types of questions and then I think the other point I made in our discussion was that um, in science, it's a very rigorous environment where everything you do is open to critical analysis. So if you, if you do some scientific research, you send it out, it goes out to, to peer review, so experts in the field review your work, and then very rarely do they say, this looks great, you publish it straight away. <laughs> and, um, and then if you give a talk at a conference, um, Usually they'll open it up to questions afterwards and usually people start their questions saying, that was a really good talk, and then begin to pick holes in your research. <laughs> and um, I guess this kind of mentality I sometimes bring to my, um, when I'm reading scripture, this kind of critical analysis nature, and so I, I, I like to often read commentaries and that kind of thing to go deeper into scripture and just to make sure I'm getting the best interpretation or understanding what all the interpretations could be. Fantastic. Thank you ever so much, Stephen. Um, yeah, let's give Stephen a round of applause. First of all, David, can you tell us what kind of scientist are you? Well, this is, it's almost a standing joke in my small group. It's quite hard to describe exactly what I do. Uh, you can call me a computational chemist, you can call me a chemical toxicologist, you can call me a computational toxicologist. 
But ultimately, it's using computer models to try and predict how and why different chemicals are going to be toxic to humans or to other animals in particular. It sounds quite impressive, doesn't it? <laughs> He's a proper scientist. Okay, so David, um, can you talk to us a little bit about how your faith impacts your work and also vice versa, how does your work impact your faith? So, how my faith impacts my work, at the first level, it's the same as it would be for almost any other profession. Uh, the advice of Paul in, I believe it's Ephesians, slaves work for your masters as for the Lord. You can extrapolate that. Employees work for your bosses. Work well. Do a good job. Um, and you have colleagues. Your work, my work, is in large part a mission field in a way. The opportunities that I have as I live and work alongside my colleagues, they're not very common, but there have been opportunities to talk about Jesus and to talk about my faith. Um, there was a conference I was at a few years ago. I have some cross cufflinks that I happened to wear to the conference dinner and ended up spending a couple of hours talking to a bunch of other scientists about faith. Um, and that can apply almost to anyone. The, where the sort of science side of things, the faith work interface really balances out is it's more in the perception of the conflict rather than the conflict itself. I don't see a conflict. Um, as Lizzie's just explained, it's different questions. But people assume there is a conflict. And so it's a surprise when I wander out from the office to go to something at Holy Trinity Ball Lane or any other similar situation where the fact I'm a Christian comes up. I need to remember to send an email about contemporary carols at some point this week. Um, <laughs> and so it, it's the perception, not the conflict itself. How my work impacts my faith is possibly a harder question to answer. Science is ultimately the testing of hypotheses. You're provided with evidence, or you do experiments to come towards evidence. You develop a theory, and then you try and find an experiment to test this theory. And that's the sort of day-to-day -day business of doing science. Coming up with ideas, testing them, proving them or disproving them. And The, this is a, a something which actually we as Christians, as scientists who are Christian, uh, have a, well, I don't want to say a distinct advantage, um, but some of what, the, the general thing about science and faith can apply to many religions. But Christianity makes a claim that can be tested, many claims that can be tested. But the core, the heart of our faith, is that Jesus rose from the dead. That's testable. It is theoretically possible that we could find the grave of Jesus. Not the tomb he laid in for three days, but a body, a skeleton now. 
That's a testable hypothesis. That's a scientific theory. And that is the core of the Christian faith, that Jesus rose from the dead. And that breaks science also. It's both science, there's a testable hypothesis, and it breaks science. Science would say people don't rise from the dead. Full stop. Jesus rose from the dead. And that is where we step away again from science to faith. So the two are intimately intertwined in my life. And the more I dig into God's creation, trying to understand that at the atomic, at the subatomic level, the nitty-gritty details of how chemicals interact with molecules in our bodies, it's just a bigger and bigger world, and therefore a more and more awesome creator to worship. Brilliant. Thank you, David. Wonderful. Um, che, I'm going to ask you the first question as well. So you, you are one of our curates here, but you are also um, a scientist. I am. So tell us what kind of science you do. So um, I was in nanotechnology uh, and specifically uh, working with electron microscopes. So yeah, nanotechnology, small things. Very small things. Yes. Okay, uh, yes. brilliant. Yes. So, as you were studying very small things, That's it, yeah. um, what did God show you? Um, yeah, so I think na- nanotechnology is amazing. It sounds complicated, kind of is a little bit, but nano just means billionth. So, billionth, 10 to the minus 9 meters. So, you're, when you're looking for an electron microscope, you're beginning, in a sense, to see things on the atomic scale. So I'd work with materials like graphene, that kind of amazing technological material, and you were able to sort of look through an electron microscope and move along this material atom by atom and do what we'd call elemental fingerprinting. So you could go like carbon, carbon, nitrogen, carbon, 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 and look at individual atoms and characterize them, work out what they were, and you would see the amazing profound impacts that tiny changes on that kind of atomic level have on the behavior of materials. You would see the intricacy of God as a scientist and as a creator, and I always found that just enhanced my faith and belief in God, actually, much like David was saying. And now tell us... um when you read Genesis 1 as a scientist, just talk to us about that. Sure. So uh, there are a couple of things that, that sprang to mind when, when we talked about that earlier this week. One of them, uh, I know David and I have sort of hinted at before, is when God says, let there be light, right? Let there be light. Now, immediately, our brains tend to think of visible light, you know, the wondrous colors that we see in the rainbow from violet to red, but it's even more than that. So, a bit of science lesson, yeah, I knew you wanted this tonight. (laughs) Yes, thank you, thank you. Uh, When you go from violet to red in the rainbow, you're getting longer wavelengths of light. We'll stick to a wave model of light for this evening. But you're getting, yeah, I know, longer wavelengths of 
light. And um, by the way, a wavelength is what you think it is. It's the length of the wave. Yeah, not, nothing tricky. So you go from violet to red, you're getting longer wavelengths of light. But you could go beyond red to longer wavelengths, that's infrared. And infrared technology, we see that all the time. It's used at home and it's used in heat detection and thermal imaging. Keep going, you get into the microwave region. Well, you've got cooking, but also in that region you've got uh, Wi-Fi, mobile data, kind of the basis of everything that we use uh, in our technological lives. Go a bit longer in wavelength to around one and a half kilometers and you've got radio for long wave, which is vital, <laughs> absolutely vital. So let there be light. Let there be light is also let there be the basis of everything that we think of as, as um, scientific, I think. And, and the other example we reflected on a little bit was when the account talks about God placing the lights in the sky, the the stars, and um, I don't know if any of you were out for bonfire night uh, last night. Uh, I was, I mean, to be honest, mostly you could sort of see smoke and sort of smell like sulfur just around. But anyway, the night sky, when the smoke cleared, was quite, quite clear. You got a really good view last night of Polaris, the North Star. And the Polaris is about 433 light years from Earth. So in other words, it takes the light 433 years from Polaris to our eye. So when you look at the North Star, in a sense you're looking into the past. You're, uh, and we think of our late Queen Elizabeth II, but in a sense you're looking back to Elizabeth I, 433 years ago, and there are stars that are far, far further away than that, where the light takes millions of years to get to our eyes. You're looking into the past. So when the account talks about God placing the lights in the sky, it's also saying something about God's profound mastery of time and space. Not just that God is a beautiful artist, which he is, and they are beautiful the constellations and the stars in the sky, but also that he is the master of time and space. And again, I just think that enhances our faith. Fantastic. Let's give these guys a round of applause. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the St George's Lead Sermon Podcast. For more talks or information, visit stgs.org.uk.